2 Timothy chapter 4, and tonight we finish the epistle. We'll study verses 16 through 22. Next week, it's my plan to give a summary of all three of the pastoral epistles and remind you of what it was we have been studying over these last uh, many months. Actually, it's been more than a year now. And I want to kind of tie it all together, the, the messages of these three books and what we are to learn from the pastoral epistles. But for tonight, we'll conclude Paul's second letter to Timothy. There are some battles in life that must be fought alone. During the fight, there may be friends and family surrounding you, comforting you, encouraging you, supporting you. But in the end, it's just you, by yourself. The battles of which I speak are primarily battles of the soul. They take place in the thought processes of our being. They are spiritual more than physical, although there can certainly be physical components to them. I can't help but think of David facing Goliath. There was a physical aspect to that confrontation, to be sure. But the real battle was in the soul of David. It was a challenge of faith. Did David really believe what he said he believed about Yahweh? Was the Lord a worthy object of his faith? Or had David's faith just been some sort of intellectual exercise? Just something to talk about when he got together with his fellow shepherds for lunch around Bethlehem in those days? Some on the battlefield that day thought that David was just a rash, prideful young man, intent on bringing attention to himself. But they were wrong. This was between David and his God. Goliath was a real and a nasty opponent. But there could have been five Goliaths there that day, and it wouldn't have mattered to David. Five hundred Goliaths are no challenge on the omnipotent God. The challenge for David was not so much how big Goliath was and how bad Goliath was, but how powerful was the God that he worshipped and whether or not he was in the will of God at any particular moment. In reality, David was not alone when he fought Goliath. God was with him. So it would be more correct to say that there are some battles in life that must be fought apart from the loving support of family and friends. But for the believer walking in fellowship with God, the battle is never really fought alone. There will be times, though, when it's just you and God. I've been in hospital rooms with friends who've been in the dying process, I think of one friend that passed away in 1999, a member of our church. I went up to the hospital to be with him on what we thought was his last night. And it was an incredible night for me, one of the most emotional nights of my life, because I, it was like terms of endearment all night long, you know, with family members coming in and them saying goodbye. But I never forget my friend. He, he, he looked at me and he made me promise to stay with him for the night and not leave him until he had received his promotion, which I did, and, and it was an interesting night because as family would come and go and children would come and go, and, and they were adult children, it was uh, quite challenging. And every time I would even move in my seat, even though this particular friend was coming in and out of consciousness, he would wake up 
And he would look and he would see if I was still there with him. And I told him I was there and I wasn't going anywhere. And and finally, uh, it was almost 48 hours later by the time the Lord actually took him. I, I didn't. He lapsed into some unconsciousness, so I left, got some sleep, and came back. And and as he received his promotion in the last few moments of his life, I had the privilege of holding his hand and and whispering some scripture in his ear, and that's the best I could do for him. Because ultimately, it was a battle that he had to fight by himself. I could be there with him. I I whispered into his ear the the last words he ever heard, because I had my finger on his pulse, were that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that was the last beat of his heart. And I wish I could have done more with I wish I could have walked across that golden bridge with him, but I couldn't. So I could be there to support him, and I could be there to love him, and I could be there to encourage him. But he was a military guy, and he knew that that was a battle he had to fight by himself, and he fought it so well. As a matter of fact, this was a man who, when I met with the family before doing the funeral, his brother was a pastor himself. The first thing his brother asked me when he saw me, he says, was my brother a believer? I said, oh, Lord, yes, he was. He died magnificently. He wasn't necessarily a believer with a lot of doctrine, with a lot of theology, but he knew who his Lord was. You know, in that time, he, he, he pulled on the fact that he understood who he had placed his faith in. And it was just him and Jesus Christ. I stood by believers that were going through intense struggles. The death of someone they loved, the breakup of a marriage offspring that are making tragic choices. And even though I could offer counsel and encouragement, every time I looked into their eyes, and still do, I know that when all is said and done, it's still an issue between them and God. But as Paul said about ten years before he pins these last words, writing a letter to the place where he's now imprisoned, he said, if God is for us, Who can be against us? I'm sure those words came to mind for him as he awaits execution in this Roman prison. Read with me now as we complete the letter. He says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a way to go. Focused on the one in whom he had believed. As Paul reflects on the historical situation, on those who have opposed him, he tells Timothy that at the preliminary hearing that he had had, no one came forward to defend him or to argue his case. Everyone had deserted him, just as Demas had deserted him. The same word, in fact, that's used in chapter 4, verse 10. The same verb is used of everyone. 
It's also the, the Asian Christians had deserted him as a group. But Paul doesn't want God to hold any of them accountable for that. That's somewhat different from the response we had toward Demas last week, wasn't it? Also toward Alexander, especially Alexander. He recognizes God's right to judge Alexander the coppersmith for his evil deeds. But not this group. From this we could assume, I think rightly, that the people who did not come forward meant Paul no harm. Not like Alexander did. These people meant him no harm. They, perhaps they were unavailable to come forward. Perhaps they were afraid to come forward. We don't know, but we, we do know this, that Paul is very gracious in his response to them in his dying moments. But verse 17, I think, can, contains one of the most comforting phrases in all of the pastoral epistles. Even though no one, no human being, came to his defense at the first at the first trial that he had. And by the way, we, we don't know anything more about that. That's why I'm not going to elaborate on it. It would just be strictly my imagination. We don't, we, we don't believe that it's the first imprisonment that he's speaking of here. We do believe that it's the second one. But outside of that, we don't know anything else. But aside from the fact that his friends didn't stand up for him. But look who did. Look who did. But the Lord stood with me. I think back, when I read this, I think back to Stephen. And Stephen's speech, one of the greatest speeches or sermons, if you will, that's ever been given. A defense of the faith toward those who were very hostile to it at the time. Stephen was courageous when it really mattered. You know, sometimes we think we're courageous for, for standing up or even sitting down at a coffee shop and talking to someone of our friend, family or friends who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as if they're going to pull out a gun and shoot us like they do in some parts of the world. Uh, that may be, we, we may be threatened with a little bit of emotional scarring, but not like what some people do, not, not like what Stephen had to face. But I never, ever forget the response that Stephen had from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he looked up right before he died, remember he saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. When we place the scripture, I know that it says that. In essence, giving Stephen what amounts to a divine standing ovation. He was standing with him. Stephen was speaking the words for Jesus Christ. He was standing up for Christ. Christ stood up with him. Paul had spent his entire life as a Christian standing up for Christ. And even though his friends at that point, and he, again, he doesn't condemn them for it. There may have been many reasons for it. But even though his friends wouldn't stand for him, the Lord did. The Lord stood with him. And who else do you need? The only reason David won that battle that day is because the Lord went with him. Who is that uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? I love that. But I love even more when he said the battle is the Lord's. It's his battle. He's going to fight it for you, with you. So even though his friends couldn't stand there with him, even though everybody else deserted him, the Lord did not desert him. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord has said that he'll never leave us and that he'll never forsake us. Now, we can leave fellowship with him, and we do so every time we rebel against him and sin, but he never initiates that action. He never just gets tired of us, you know, like some people do in marriage. You know, I'm just tired of you. Isn't that tragic when it happens? As if the commitment that you made so many years before wasn't really a commitment. 
But God never gets tired of you. God's never going to divorce you. Now, he, he may discipline you and call you home with a sin unto death, but he's not going to divorce you. He's going to stand there with you. He stands ready for that fellowship to be restored every time we acknowledge our failure. And then here, at the end of Paul's life, he recognizes that the Lord will be him, be with him in a personal way all the way through this. When he takes that final walk outside of Rome, outside the city limits, and kneels for the executioner, he'll have complete confidence that the Lord will carry him through, even to the end. And the result is twofold. God's will for the word of God being proclaimed will be fulfilled, particularly to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, although he had many Jewish converts as well. And finally, the text says, Paul will be delivered out of the lion's mouth. There have been many attempts to understand what Paul meant by this second phrase about the lion's mouth. Some have asserted that the lion was Nero. Others have indicated that he was being saved from being thrown to the lions in the Circus Maximus. I've only been to Rome once, but I found the Circus Maximus purely by accident. It doesn't look like much today. It looks like a a football field that's maybe three or four football fields long. People are out there running their dogs and, and playing frisbee with, at that particular spot. Had I known what that spot was, I would not have walked across it. I would have walked around it. Much like the students at Texas A&M don't walk on the grass near the MSC out of respect for those who have fallen in battle. I would have walked across it out of respect for the Christians who had been executed at the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus actually is just on the other side of the hill from where Paul was held in prison, which always has been an interesting um, tidbit for me. After having seen that and knowing that Paul is writing these words in a place where he could have heard the roar of the crowd. The Circus Maximus was huge. It, it's, it's a little difficult to reconstruct it to figure out exactly how big it was. We know the Colosseum, which is the structure that still stands. It's down the street from where the Mamertime Dungeon was. That holds about 50,000 people. But it was not built when Paul was alive. It was built after that. The Circus Maximus, though, held about 250,000 people. It's said that people had to pay to get into the Colosseum, you know, like we do today with a little ticket price. But people got into the Circus Maximus for free. Now, now the primary thing they had there was, was chariot races. Secondary thing was gladiatorial con uh, contests, those, those barbaric contests. But the third thing that they typically had there were, were a site, it was a site for execution of Christians often being thrown to the lions. One historian writes this about the Circus Maximus and Nero. He says, Nero performed the worst atrocities upon his victims. He did not just kill Christians. He wanted to make them suffer first. Nero enjoyed dipping the Christians in wax and impaling them on poles around his palace. He would then light them on fire and yell, now you are truly the light of the world. This is the same person that Paul has insisted that we pray for, by the way, in the first letter to Timothy. Nero also performed many other kinds of torture, often killing them in the Circus Maximus in front of large crowds of spectators where he did some of his most gruesome murders. Here he would wrap Christians up in animal skins and throw them to the lions or dogs who would then tear these men and women apart in front of thousands of entertained spectators. At other times, he would crucify them. And after the crowd would get bored, he would set the Christians on fire. And this is what happened in the Circus Maximus 
just a relatively short distance from where Paul was being held in prison. That's what some people think Paul's referring here to here, is, is that he was spared that. But since it was unlikely, and I mean not impossible, not impossible by any means, but unlikely, uh, the reason I say that is because Nero was, was such a, an insane person, he may very well have broken Roman law, he did many times, but it's unlikely that Paul would face that kind of execution because of his Roman citizenship. The consensus is that, that Paul is speaking here metaphorically of his rescue from immediate death, recognizing that while he will die in this imprisonment, God will rescue him from any serious danger and bring him safely to heaven. Paul says, I, I know the Lord has delivered me. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. And some people say, well, how could Paul say that? You know, just a short time later, he's executed. He's, he's beheaded. Have you ever stopped to, to think about that? Maybe you haven't. The Lord did deliver him. And that's not a cop-out. If you really believe what it is you say you believe, then death is a deliverance. And he delivered him from being ripped apart by, by the lions. He delivered him from any more embarrassment than he had to suffer, from any more physical ailments than he had to suffer. He delivered him right straight up into heaven and was with him all the way. All the way. Every bit of it. Paul said, I know in whom I have believed. And I'm confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. So in verse 18, which is the final verse of the formal portion of the letter, Paul says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then in verses 19 through 22, there are some final uh, greetings that are made to particular folks. Greet Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, as she's known other places. And the household of Onesiphorus. Erasmus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. And then in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. I think Chuck Swindoll titled one of his books that, to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus greets you, and Prudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Uh, Prisca, who elsewhere in the scriptures is called Priscilla and Aquila, were the well-known couple that taught Apollos in Ephesus. Apparently they were residents of Ephesus. The faithful household of Onesiphorus was also singled out by the Apostle for greeting. He is mentioned in other places in scripture. Erastus was an old associate of Paul's and of Timothy. We, we learned that back in, we read it in Acts chapter 19, verse 22. And his whereabouts would have been of interest to Timothy. That's why Paul tells Timothy where he is. He's in Corinth. Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. I think this is an interesting one. We need to pause ever so briefly here. Trophimus is sick. Now the Apostle Paul had the gift of healing. He was an apostle. We, we learn from the record in Acts that he did heal people. The apostles, in, in effect, per, performed all the miracles or the same categories of miracles that Jesus had performed, demonstrating that they were indeed from him, that they, they spoke a message for him. That's something we're going to study in our, when we get to the book of Acts. It'll probably be a few weeks, perhaps even months, before we get to those particular passages. But what's the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Particularly these 
fantastic spiritual gifts like tongues and like healings. Some people think those gifts are normative for today. I don't think they are. I think those gifts had a special purpose. They had a purpose as a sign to demonstrate that one truly was a representative of God, in this case an apostolic representative. And once that apostolic representation was validated, was appropriately validated, then the gift appeared to, certain gifts appeared to die out. Certainly we see that with the gift of healing. The gift of tongues, I think, faded out because the canon of Scripture was completed. But the gift of healing, as it is practiced today, I want you to listen carefully to me, the gift of healing, as it is, I should say, allegedly practiced today, is a farce. I can name names, but you know who they are. Just turn on certain television channels, and they're there one right after another. And and it troubles me because many of the people that that are victims of the farce are giving every dime that they have to some of these folks. And they're placing all their faith and their hope in the, the ability. It's their last chance, many of them. Few go to them on their first shot. But there was one so-called healer that came to Houston a few years ago, and I was invited by a member of our congregation to attend the service. It was an incredible service. I wanted to see what it was all about. Uh, the preaching was, was poor, to say the least, but I did learn a few things just in watching this particular gentleman. It was like... It was like Brother Love's Travel and Salvation show, and I know that dates me a, a bit, but, but uh, some of you will remember that, that Neil Diamond song from Hot August Night, um, I think it was back in the 60s. Remember he was starting soft and slow like a small earthquake, but when he let go, half the valley shakes for love, Brother Love's Travel and Salvation show. That was like this guy was. And he, he started slow in a monotone way, and he, and he built up the volume and the pace. The whole time he's quoting scripture in an incredibly out of context way. But he, he built a pace and built a pace and built a pace to where finally toward the end of his sermon he was screaming at the people that were there, several thousand of his closest supporters. Well, the rest of the evening's festivities are not really worth spending a lot of time where they were bizarre to say the least. I ended up leaving because I just felt the presence of Satan there. I haven't felt that hardly any in my life, but I felt it that night. I thought it was time for me to go. I had seen what I needed to see. But the next night, that was a Thursday night, but the next night was the interesting night. I left before the healing service actually got started. But the next night, the person that goes to our church still does. I won't say her name in case she doesn't want to be recognized for this. But, but she was there when this happened. During the healing service, They had to call three ambulances, which I found kind of interesting and maybe wouldn't have believed it had she not been there and been one of the ones to call because there was three people that broke bones during the healing service. As this man would slay them, they would fall down, and I believe it was two ankles and a wrist that were broken, and they had to get ambulances to come and take away these poor people who who had been victimized by this charlatan. This particular guy, I don't say this hardly ever at all, I I don't believe he's a believer, I think he is a 100% charlatan, I think he's a fake. I don't think he sincerely believes what he does at all because of other things that happened behind the scenes at the Hyatt Regency that week. One of our people observed thousands of dollars, not hundreds, thousands of dollars being collected in donations before the person ever got to get up on the stage in the first place. Now, you've got to be careful with that because it's got to be a donation because if it's, if it's done afterwards, it's a fee and it's practicing medicine without a license. So they know very carefully 
how to get around that. But thousands were collected. Now, think of the person's mindset. As they, they've got cancer, they've got some incredible disease, and they give thousands of dollars in the last shot to get some sort of healing. Then whether they walked in or crawled in, they were all put in wheelchairs. And when they were, when they finally made it to the stage, even if they had walked in, this particular fellow would say, get up and come over here. Well, sure, they weren't too difficult. <laughs> they walked in in the first place. Then you've got thousands of people that are cheering for you, you know, and, and, and waving hands and, and, and going into some sort of a static frenzy. And so you do too. And perhaps your back did hurt you when you got up there. But a surge of adrenaline, any physician can tell you, a surge of adrenaline is a painkiller, at least in a normally functioning human being. That's what allows someone to, to succeed in battle and then, then die later. You know, they, they have this incredible surge that allows them to get through it. You know, NBC Dateline, I don't usually quote them as an authoritative source. They've done so much good for humanity. But I mean, this particular time, there was an expose done on this particular fellow. And they challenged his ministry. You know, he claims thousands healed. They challenged him to produce just a few that they could go talk to. You know how many they produced? Out of all the thousands, one. They produced one. So they went and talked to him. And, of course, it was very embarrassing for the ministry because they went and talked to the person, and it turned out that person was never sick in the first place. That wasn't even a verifiable one. This particular guy healed one of the other healers on the television show, TBN, one time. Healed him of his heart condition. Unfortunately, it didn't heal him well enough because just within an hour later, the guy had a heart attack and was in the hospital. So my point is not to, not to make fun because I think it's a tragic thing. People are, are fleecing the flock. God doesn't put up with that. I wouldn't want to be that particular person when God decides to take action. The gift of healing is not for today. We'll see this more when we get to the book of Acts. Paul left his dear friend ill. He left him behind. Because his apostolic, apostolic authority had already been established. So Trophimus is going to die a natural death. One of the bad parts about this theology is, is if you're healthy, if you're Spiritually, you'll be healthy theology, which is what all these guys say. They never have an answer when they themselves get sick, or tragically when their wives get sick. Oh, they have an answer. It's that Satan overpowered their faith. You know, Satan overrode the situation like he did in the book of Job. But it's a weak answer. And it makes people believe that if they're sick, they're sinful. Now, all of us are sick because we're sinful in the sense of Adam's original sin. I'll grant you that. But not in the sense of our own personal sin. true. Our own personal sins can lead to sickness. If you are cavorting around the wrong part of town with the wrong people, yeah, you may end up coming up with some disease. That, that, it could be that, but just because you got a cold doesn't mean you did something wrong yesterday. And just because your husband has cancer that doesn't mean he did something wrong either. So Paul leaves Trophimus sick at Miletus. This is no accident that he tells us this specific information at the end of his life. He puts this in here to let us know, I believe, that there was a, an end point to Paul's apostolic calling card. By that time, he had been well established throughout the, um, the Greek and the Asian world, and it was no longer necessary for him. So he leaves him sick there. Paul says in verse 21, make every, he's speaking to Timothy now directly, make every effort to come before winter. Sometimes, Sometimes people have a hard time separating out what, what is a message that is directly to Timothy and then the message that's universal to all of us. 
Well, since, since Paul's been long dead, this can't apply directly to us. That's, uh, it's, these things are not as complicated as sometimes people make them. This, this is spoken directly to Timothy. He's, he wants him to come before winter probably for one of two things. He wants him to bring his coat. Remember, he's already said that earlier in, the, in this chapter. And we speculated then that perhaps the coat was because Paul was ill. You know, he was in very bad conditions, very unhealthy conditions. Uh, conditions reminiscent of John Huss at the Council of Constance. You know, John Huss was in the 14, 14, 15 or so, 14, in that range. John Huss's crime for which he was arrested was translating the Bible into Czechoslovakian. And he was arrested, he was taken to the Council of Constance, and um, he was assured safe passage there. He, he would have fled, but he was assured safe passage by the political leaders of that, of that time. And when he gets to Constance, he doesn't get a fair trial. When he gets to that particular council, he's thrown into prison. Only the prison that he's thrown into is not really the prison. He is chained to the latrine. You can imagine how unhealthy that was. And he spent week after week after week chained to the area where uh, those things were done. And you can imagine how sick and ill he became. Right before John Huss dies of the illness that was introduced to him from this, uh, these unsanitary, filthy conditions, the cardinals of that time bring him up before them, and they pronounce him a heretic, which he knew all along they would do. He knew that before he left. But he turned to the political leader and says, okay, now they pronounce me a heretic. Is it okay for me to go? And the political leader said, no, it's not okay for you to go. And he says, well, you promised me. You know, if I came, no matter what the verdict was, you would give me safe passage back to Czechoslovakia. He said, yeah, I promised you that, but you're a heretic. And I don't have to keep my promise to a heretic. So John Huss was taken out and burned at the stake. And almost exactly 100 years later, as per Huss's wishes, Martin Luther came on the scene and the Protestant Reformation spread like wildfire. I think back to Huss and his story when I think of the Apostle Paul. It could have been that he was in such unsanitary conditions that he had become ill, and maybe that's why he needed his coat. Maybe that's why he wants Timothy to come before winter, so that when winter finally gets there, he'll have a coat to wear. But it also probably meant more, or was more specifically, he wanted Timothy to come before winter, because part of that journey would have been made by sea. And in the wintertime, that's no place to be, uh, the, the sea is no place to be unless you're the, the most experienced of boaters. Uh, and, and I would think that uh, even back then, a lot of the regular commercial traffic was stopped, and they just waited until the spring came. And so Paul assumes that he's going to be executed before the spring. He wants Timothy to shut things down in Ephesus. We've already, saw, we've already seen last week that there will be somebody to come take his place and... Uh, um, to get to him as quickly as possible. And isn't that what a friend would do? You know, I think we all have had times when, when someone has is, is called upon us and, and we've been too busy with the trivial things of life to stop and help. But this is, while, while Timothy was the only one that was commanded to, to go there, I think this is a picture for the rest of us as well. There, there are times when we need to put down what it is we're doing and go take care of something that's far more important than cutting the front yard or finishing dinner or whatever it may be. Come before winter. 
These next three people, Eubulus, Putins, Linus, and Claudia, we know nothing about. There are four people that are in Rome with Paul. When we compare this verse, verse 21, to verse 16, in my first offense, no one supported me. When we compare that with the, the fact that he says everyone has deserted him, we also have to see Paul's forgiveness. There are people that had, that had disappointed him. Again, I say, I, I don't believe that they, they may have done it with bad intent. I don't think they were malicious like Alexander the coppersmith, but they had disappointed Paul. And sometimes friends do that because we're all human. Sometimes your spouse is going to disappoint you. Sometimes your children are going to disappoint you. Sometimes your parents are going to disappoint you. Sometimes your pastor is going to disappoint you. But Paul, even though he was disappointed, forgave. The scriptures tell us that, as Jesus himself tells us, that if we don't forgive, then we won't be forgiven. One of the worst things you can do to sabotage your own personal spiritual life is to hold a grudge. And if you're holding a grudge, get rid of it. Because the listing of these four people at least tells us that Paul hasn't held a grudge against those that were there. You know, if you hold a grudge, if you fail to forgive someone else, people have said sometimes, well, why would that make me not forgiven? The scriptures also say, if I confess my sins and that he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and that cleanses me from all unrighteousness, so what does that mean to me? You know, if I'm holding to that promise, well, you've got to take the entirety of the divine revelation on this subject. And if you fail to forgive someone else, Jesus is saying that's a sin. You see the point? If you're harboring bitterness in your heart, that's a sin. So you may confess the rest of your sins, and then about the time you say amen, if you're still harboring that bitterness in your heart, I think they call it a nanosecond, about the smallest amount of time one can measure something, that's about how long you're going to stay in fellowship. You're right back out. That's what Jesus meant. So if you really want to walk in fellowship with God, not only you confess your sins before God, but when somebody's wronged you, you let it go. Now, there may be judicial activity that's, you know, if a law has been broken, certainly there's, there's certain actions that have to be taken by the police and by the courts and things like that. I'm not saying that. But on a personal basis, you're going to do nothing but harm to yourself if you harbor ill will towards someone else. Bitterness will kill you. Bitterness is like a cancer that we mentioned so many times tonight. So many people. A cancer just kind of eats you up from the inside out. That's what bitterness will do to you, too. And Paul didn't have it. Paul did not die a bitter man. He died a very content man. And then finally, in verse 22, The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Just one note about this, and I think it will end the, the book on a very poignant note. You don't see it in English, but it's there in Greek. The Lord be with your spirit. Now, the your there is singular. He's talking to Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. The second you, though, is plural. Grace be with you, or you all. So even though this letter is written to Timothy, Paul finishes with a word to you and a word to me, because that second you being plural includes all of us. So when, the, when, the, when Paul comes to the end of his life and he, he ends his public ministry, the last word is a plural you, you and me both. What a nice benediction. And so Paul's last letter comes to an end.
Next week, when we regather together, we'll consider a, a summary of the, the lessons that we've learned from all the Pauline epistles. But until that time, Heavenly Father, we are appreciative, so appreciative, of the Apostle Paul and his ministry to us, and not just Paul and the way that he ministered in writing these incredible spiritual truths down as part of your divine self-disclosure, but we're grateful for all who have gone before us and laid the foundation that we stand upon today. We stand on the shoulders of so many, and we thank you for their strength. We thank you that you were with the Apostle Paul even to the end, that you and you alone walked across that golden high bridge with him, Father, I pray for each one of us that we can say, as Paul did, I know in whom I have believed, and I'm confident that he, that you, Father, are able to deliver that which we have entrusted you until that day. Father, I know all of us are going to go through difficult times. We already have many of us, if not everybody here. And I do pray that while we may seem to be alone in one sense, that we'll all recognize and remember that you have promised that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. Father, we thank you for that. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.